All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to The Way of the Truth Warrior. My name is David Whitehead. Another great show for you today. Uh, very, very excited about this one, guys. Today it is Wednesday, October 20th, 2021. I hope you're doing well wherever you are watching this in the world. I've got some more good news for you today. I uh, hope you caught my show on Monday uh, where I had a professor from uh, University of British Columbia. Uh, Chris came on and just gave an excellent, excellent interview. Please go back and check that out and share it as far and wide as possible. I don't know about you, but I'm getting inundated with calls and emails and messages from people all over the country right now in Canada where I live. Uh, there's even some of you messaging me from other parts of the world as well who are working behind the scenes in police, military, the medical profession, government, legal profession, etc. And it does my heart good to see so many people out there waking up to what is really going on in our current situation. And uh, I'm very excited to have yet another uh, brave, courageous soul who is coming forward to tell his story. He's actually founded an organization called Mounties for Freedom with a group of other active uh, RCMP and police. And I'm very excited to see this. I had also done a few months back a show on another organization of police in Canada that are resisting tyranny. They're actually pursuing lawsuits and they're trying to wake up people in the police force in this country. Uh, police on guard for thee. That's also another really good interview to check out that will complement what we're going to do here today. But let me just show you a little bit about this organization before I bring my guest in. You can go and check this out. Mounties for Freedom. And it is Mounties, the number four, and then freedom.ca. Mounties4freedom.ca. Let me just give you a little synopsis of what this organization is all about. It starts by saying, if your freedom is our fight. As dedicated Mounties, and for those listening elsewhere, that's what we call our beloved police in this country. So as dedicated Mounties, we all come from different ranks, levels of experience, cultural backgrounds, religious beliefs, vaccination statuses, and communities across the country. We are committed to protecting the rights and freedoms of choice for every Canadian. We believe in democracy and defending the principles under which our country was founded and operated. As police officers, we collect evidence in search of the truth. We do not support those who silence the truth, science, and evidence from our world-renowned experts. I like that one. We support the millions of Canadians who believe that all forced COVID mandates and vaccine passports are crimes against humanity. I like how they just come right out and say it. This is what we need. Together, we fight to defend our charter of rights and freedoms of choice to ensure that we're all treated with the same respect, dignity, and consideration without discrimination or segregation today, tomorrow, and for all future generations. Our strength in numbers is growing daily in partnerships with all first responders, nurses, doctors, and frontline workers and freedom of rights organizations. Together, we stand united with one common goal, freedom of choice. We don't have to agree, folks. That's the beautiful thing about freedom. We can agree to disagree. Who are we? This website was formed by the collective thoughts, beliefs, and opinions of actively serving Canadian police officers from across the country. We have a wealth of policing experience, which includes, but it is not limited to, general duty, federal serious and organized crime, school liaison, homicide investigation team, uniformed gang enforcement team, national security enforcement team, anti-terrorism, interview team, 
prime minister protection detail, <laughs> interesting, emergency response team, traffic, and combined forces, special forces unit. We come from various ranks, levels of experience, communities, cultural backgrounds, religious beliefs, and vaccination statuses. Together, we form Mounties for Freedom. We do not claim to speak for any police agency, nor do we claim to speak for any particular membership. And here's what we stand for. We stand united against the forced and coerced medical intervention of Canadians and against the discrimination faced by those who have exercised their right to decide on their own bodily autonomy. We believe in democracy, the Constitution, and the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. What a fantastic shot right there. Very, very good. And uh, let me just come back. So go check out that site, guys. Please support them. I also want to give a shout out to my good friend, Dan, uh, who also put me in touch with this organization. Thank you, sir. And let me introduce our guest. Let me just check real quick before we do that, though. I want to make sure our chat is working. Hello, everybody in the chat. Hello, DLive. Hello, Rockfin. How's the foxhole doing? Let me check on you guys. We are live and we are going to thrive. That's what's up. Okay, Foxhole's doing well. Twitch is doing well. Okay, welcome everybody. Let me introduce today's guest. So today I'll be interviewing Corporal Daniel Bulford. He's a member of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. He joined the RCMP back in 2006. He graduated from the Training Academy in 2007. He spent six and a half years policing in the Yukon, Whitehorse, and Mayo detachments, primarily general duty policing. He then transferred to Ottawa in 2013 to do full-time emergency response, and he was part of the ERT team. And I've met some members from that team, and they really are fantastic people. So shout out to you guys. Uh, last eight years, primary role has been tactical enforcement and protective operations as an ERT sniper and observer. Ooh, that's pretty cool. We'll have to talk about that. Primary duty during time in Ottawa is supporting the protection of the prime minister and other internationally protected persons. Other duties include tactical enforcement related to organized crime and domestic terrorism. And so, as you can see, we are going to the tip top of the brave men and women who work to keep our freedom secure. And it's good to see that they're on our side, at least some of them. Let's hope there's more, but let's bring them on. Uh, there he is. Daniel, how you doing, brother? Thank you so much for joining me, uh, for having the courage to speak out. I've had some really great chats with you off the air, and I'm really honored to have you here on Truth Warrior. Welcome, my friend. Well, thank you very much. I uh, really appreciate the opportunity to come on and deliver a message on behalf of Mounties for Freedom. Um, just quickly, if you don't mind. Go right ahead. Intro, you mentioned that I was the founder of the group, which I was not. I can't take credit for that. The group existed before I joined, and then I was just willing to volunteer to become public with the media. Okay, thanks for clearing that up. So it's a group of you. Um, so this this organization, do you know when it was founded? Uh, I'm not exactly sure of the exact date. Um, I've been involved for a few weeks now. It's pretty new, um, though. Yeah, it's fairly new. Yeah, I, I had been, I'd signed up with Police on Guard previous, and then I learned about the Mounties for Freedom group afterward. And um, there's a there's a couple hundred people in the main chat that I'm a part of. But then okay. there's also, there's branch off groups um, specifically for kind of the admin side, the media side, etc. So I don't, 
I don't actually know the exact number, um, but there, there's a more than a couple hundred of us for sure. And that's pretty incredible when you put that together with the police on guard for the organization. And then just from my own discussions with people that I know, there's a lot more police uh, that are behind the scenes. A lot of them maybe feel like they're isolated. They're the only ones in their detachment. So they feel like they're alone. And I know you wanted to speak to that because it appears they're not alone and neither are the rest of the people in Canada when it comes to realizing the situation we're in and trying to take action to put an end to it and expose it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that was one of the, our concerns and part of the reason that we wanted to become public was because there was no communication really um, from internally providing support to members that we, we know are out there because we are many of them, right? Wonder, feeling like a right. small minority and wondering if anyone out else out there is of the same mindset. And so we wanted to go public to, to let the membership know that, hey, you're not alone. And we have people that are willing to stand with you and to stand up for, for your right to choose. That's excellent. Well, we need it. And um, I see more and more people coming out from different places, which means people are waking up. They're seeing what's going on. They're seeing through the fog of the mainstream media. Um, they're realizing that there is scores and scores of medical professionals, top level experts, world renowned scientific experts around the world that are speaking out very boldly right now against these lockdown mandates, the vaccine passports, the masking, the, you know, what they're doing to children in schools, which is just don't even get me started. Um, that's what gets me up in the morning and, uh, you know, what they want to do next. And there's a lot of speculation about what's coming next, but here we are right now with what we know. And, uh, you know, so maybe tell a little bit about your story of what woke you up to the fact that there was something dark going on with what's, what's happening here. Okay, sure. Well, um, early on, you know, at the very beginning of all this early 2020, um, when we heard what was coming out of, out of China and that it was going to be impacting the world, even I was of the opinion, like, okay, yeah, we're going to lock down do what we got to do. And I even remember having uh, conversations about, you know, vaccines potentially saving the day. Um, but then as time progressed, uh, we, when they started to run the, the vaccine rollout in this country, um, my unit was offered them fairly early. And I was kind of surprised by that um, because you know, we're not in the elderly, we're not sick, we don't have comorbidities. And that's what we were hearing about the people that were the most vulnerable. And here you have this unit of strong, healthy, strapping 30, 30 to 40 year old men, for the most part, that are pretty low risk, all things considered. And uh, so I was kind of shocked when we all of a sudden were approached about getting the vaccine. And so I just I thought to myself, well, you know what, I haven't had really, I haven't really expected this to come this quickly. So I'd like to know a little bit more about it before I, before I commit to this, knowing that this is fairly new. And I had already heard some rumblings about the, the new possibility of the new technology that was being implemented. Right. And so I asked if it was mandatory, 
And the answer at that time was no, it's not mandatory yet. You know, it may be in the future, but um, as it stands right now, not yet. So I was like, okay, well, I'm going to hold off until I can do a little bit of looking into this because I wanted to make an informed decision just for myself. Um, <clears throat> so I started digging a little bit, I guess. I don't have a, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm not a doctor, not a scientist, not even an academic, but a good chunk of my career, I was an investigator and, you know, no rock star, no Sherlock Holmes, but, you know, I think most people that have worked with me would agree that I was, I was competent. And so I just launched my own really open source investigation into these things. Um, actually, if you don't mind, I would like to, to say something sure. to preface this before I get right into what I found when I was looking into things. Um, I guess uh, the thing I would like to do for the audience and anyone who's listening um, and anyone who may listen that might be of a different opinion than me is that I would like, I'd like to appeal to the humanity of Canadians um, so that to help them understand why so many people, you know, if you look at the current statistics from public health Canada, there's still 13% of the 12 and over population in Canada that haven't received a single dose. And I think that's, that's quite a bit markedly higher than what you would normally see for other more traditional, like uh, other existing vaccines, like childhood vaccines. I think that's roughly about like 97% of people feel that they're safe and effective. But so the number is quite a bit higher. And I suspect that we only got to that 87% because of a lot of the pressure tactics that are being imposed by the government. Right. Yeah. Um, so, and then within that 13%, you're talking about first responders, scientists, like you mentioned, and, and medical professionals, you know, that are unwilling to comply with these policies and these mandates. And I can assure, I can assure people, like, it's not because we're only considered, we're only concerned with our personal safety and that we have no regard for everybody else like that we've all made a career based on the opposite of that you know willingly and repeatedly putting ourselves at risk for others and i'm totally fine with that right like that that was that was the career that i chose but you know people like me have put my put ourselves in in real physical harm's way and not just physical harm, but, you know, a tremendous amount of mental stress at times in order to serve our communities and first responders, healthcare workers, we've been working throughout this entire period of time, regardless of the associated risk, right? Because the, the population relies on us, um, especially people that are right on the front line. Like with my team, I'm a little bit more revo removed. Like I'm not a, a patrol officer on the front line anymore. But, you know, we were still going to work. We were still responding to calls, conducting operations in all different parts of Canada over 2020, 2021. Um, and, you know, I, I, it's ironic because, you know, a big part of my job is protecting government officials here in the national capital region. And, you know, like when October 22nd happened, the shooting at the war memorial and then the gunman at parliament hill i was at home on leave 
with our right after the birth of our youngest child. And as soon as I found out that it was happening, I dropped what I was doing and I went screaming into the office there. I wasn't obligated to do that. I was on parental leave, but I, I didn't care. I, I went into the office and I, I went to go help my team. And, you know, similarly, uh, last summer when the gunman rammed the gate at Rideau Hall and then mm. went on foot yeah. towards the, the prime minister's residence and the governor general's residence, I was one of the guys on the ground there who responded to that call. And when I got on the ground, a couple of our members were already engaging him, like verbally, trying to get him to surrender. And I was, you know, within 30 meters of that guy and he had multiple firearms. So again, not looking for a hero cookie, not looking for a pat on the back, just to put it in perspective that like, I, I'm more than willing to put myself at risk for the protection of other people in this country. So I think a lot of people are still under that impression. Well, you know, you need to do your part. Like, well, people like us do our part all the time and we have been our entire career. That's but right. There's something going on here with this current situation that just doesn't seem right. Um, you know, and, and ironically, despite those experiences, uh, the same government officials are now trying to take my ability to provide an income for my family away and others like me. Um, you know, you, you think about, I think about those nurses, those healthcare workers in the hospitals, man, like they keep screaming at the top of their lungs in the media that hospitals are overwhelmed, but we're willing to lay off hundreds, thousands of healthcare workers and reduce capacity even further. That's, yeah, doesn't that say everything? Like to me, that, that that's to me, that's huge. I, I agree. That's a huge signal that something is not right with this entire situation, and we need to we need to be mindful of that. We need to be awake to that. And so, you know, a lot a lot of people, I think, if you're only listening to the government narrative and the narrative in the mainstream media. You think, oh, those those anti-vaxxers, which I hate that term because we're not. Um, they're not. They're not willing to do their part for society. It's like, no, you don't know the whole story. And if and if you haven't gone looking for information uh, outside of those sources, then you're not going to find the other side of the story. So, anyways, all that to be said, um, that's leading me into my point about what when I really started to look into this. And so again, not a doctor, not a scientist, not an academic, but a competent investigator. And you don't have to be real savvy to find the information that I found. It's all public access online. Um, you know, most of it through non-censorship platforms like yourself because unfortunately the big tech platforms have also been censoring and completely deplatforming, like you said, heavily credentialed physicians and scientists who are speaking out on this matter. That's Anyways, right. um, so, you know, you, I wanted to approach this with an open mind. And so I, I started looking at the at the official resources first, you know, and I kept finding that all you hear is all you see really is those those same statements like vaccines are safe and effective, the benefits outweigh the risk, you know, it's the best tool to to fight the spread or to prevent infection and to prevent the spread. Okay, well, perhaps that's true 
of some vaccines, but with these ones, I wasn't finding anything really of substance to back that up, you know, and they weren't super trans transparent about providing that information. And I get it, like pharmaceutical companies have a, you know, they, they have their intellectual property that they're dealing with, but, but still, you know, like if you want to instill confidence in the population, I think you need to make some of that information available. Rather well, and if I can just add there, Daniel, but to blindly, sorry, go ahead. Oh yeah. No. And just to add pretty, probably what you were about to say, um, expecting us to blindly trust, uh, organizations like these pharmaceutical companies, all of which who I've proven on this show, um, are guilty of incredible amounts of felony crime, fraud, yeah. uh, you know, so the track record isn't really good to begin with the track record yeah. of many of the drugs, right? Like we have, uh, you know, Dr. Peter Goach, who's come out and said in his books, uh, and he, he used to sell for pharma. He was a pharma salesman. And even he came out and said, just the drugs alone, not vaccines yet, just talking about the drugs that are prescribed that go through the tests that are FDA approved. The drugs alone are the third leading cause of death in America next to heart disease and cancer. And yet wow. these companies are still in operation. And as an officer of the law, you enforce all the time uh, people that are using illicit street drugs because they're dangerous or they could spread it to give it to kids. And that, you know, uh, we, we, we deal with people on a level of criminality on the, you know, for every average Joe out there, yet these massive multi-billion dollar corporations uh, seem to get off with just a slap on the wrist, if that. And what really got me going was that to find out that with all the vaccines on the schedule as, and also with these ones, they are not held legally liable in the event of any kind of injury or death due to the shot. And so that to me, if I'm going to sell a product and I was an entrepreneur, I am an entrepreneur. I had a business that got shut down because of all this, but I have to back up what I say and what product I put out and the service that I offer the public. If I don't, the laundry list of laws that I have to answer to, just as somebody that ran a dojo in a martial art facility it's unbelievable. So the fact that you brought up two really important things, well, a lot of important things, but two things that stood out for me is we've got record numbers globally of medical professionals willing to risk their careers, their jobs, and their lives to not take these shots. So that should ring a few alarm bells. I know it's not all yeah, of them, a, a but it's a significant, signal. it's a huge safety signal, right? An investigation. If we're investigating a crime, we go, well, that's an interesting thread. And then you add to the pot that when they're trying to force you breaching the Nuremberg code, breaching five different sections of the charter and the Geneva convention to tell you to say, you don't have bodily autonomy anymore. And you're going to take this new, and this is, this isn't even a normal vaccine. This is a new experimental technology that is being mass delivered to the entire human population. And now it's at the, it, it started with bribes and now it's moved to threats. And now they're threatening people's livelihoods, their income, their freedom. And my concern is the precedent. Well, my concern is that, but another concern is the precedent that is being set by allowing the government to do this. Or so even those people out there that are, they think this vaccine is the next holy grail. Um, we have to understand the precedent being set by governments around the world, coordinating on the same agenda to restrict the freedom that we once had to decide what goes in our body and what doesn't. And that, that to me is there. I don't care if there's a pandemic running around, we can talk about the numbers, 
you know, there is a choice when it comes to your health. And I would say for you, I'm, I'm sure you keep yourself physically fit and healthy and you're health conscious. I am too. Um, I've already had whatever this thing is. I bet you a lot of people already have. And so there's a lot of it just for people to just say, well, you're not doing your part. You're irresponsible. You're careless. That's insanity. It's just mm -hmm. that we didn't take this one singular solution that the government's literally trying to ram down our throats. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, uh, so that I just wanted to try and get that message out there to appeal to people's humanity. And, and hopefully if they actually listen to what I'm saying, instead of just tuning out as tuning me out as misinformation, um, they might reconsider their position. Um, because again, everything I found is it's all public access. Right. Um, so just, I mean, again, I can't go into the weeds too far. We don't have the time for that. I have gone into the weeds very far, but um, just trying to hit on some highlights that I thought might be of interest to people who maybe they haven't done any investigation of their own. I mean, this is all open source, right? Mm -hmm. So on Public Health Canada website, if you look at the surface of it, there's, uh, you know, they're talking about adverse events. And, and I've specifically tried to focus on um, the serious ones, you know, so I think there's over 19,000 total, but when you look at the serious ones, they're looking at, uh, it's almost 5,000. So 4,900 and change, uh, serious adverse events. And like, so, so that relates to a small number percentage wise, when you compare it to the total doses administered. But again, we, I would question how many of those adverse events are actually reported, but I can come back to why I feel that way. Um, so when you look at the serious adverse events, you know, that, that includes things that could be like permanently disabling and even death. Um, you know, so cardiac systems, there's over a thousand reports and like some of those include, like most of them are myocarditis, pericarditis, but some of them include heart attacks, heart failure, and, uh, uh, cardiac arrest, um, circulatory system, you know, even that was in the media a little bit with the blood clotting concerns. Right. Yeah. And there's over, there's over 900 of those. If you look at the nerves and central nervous system, uh, I think the number was, I want to, I want to be accurate here. I think it was 745, but when they broke it down, they only broke it down within like strokes, like on the website, it's only broken down into 151 strokes, but then there's also, um, 30, 30 cases of transverse myelitis, which mm. is inflammation of the spinal cord. And so when you listen to some of these experts like Dr. Hoff or Peter McCullough in the United States, they're saying like, you know, damage to the heart, damage to the nervous system, damage to the spinal cord. Like those are tissues in the human body that do not regenerate. You know, it's not like the liver, right? It's not like some of these other tissues in the body that have, a, have an incredible ability to regenerate. Like the damage is the damage. And you'll hear a lot of people downplay the myocarditis and pericarditis, which we know is predominantly in younger people. Like we're talking adolescent males, predominantly 12 to 18 with Pfizer, or sorry, 12 to 17 with Pfizer, 18 to 24 with Moderna. And this is right on there. This is right on the fact sheet from the pharmaceutical companies. Um, so that when you just listen to a person like Peter McCullough, who, at my understanding, is the most 
published and cited, he's a specialist in cardiology and kidneys, and he's the most published and cited uh, professional in his field in the history of the world. And he's saying that it's incredible. You can't downplay this as mild myocarditis. Like you have no idea the impact that that may have until like months to possibly further down the road. Right. Um, the, the heart doesn't repair after it's been damaged. So, I mean, like there's some significant concerns with, and I know people will say, Oh, well, those concerns exist with the virus as well. It's like, okay, fair enough maybe but at the same token like yeah, but the the virus you come into contact sometimes outside of your control as opposed to being repeatedly injected with something that can do the same thing you know so that's i have a bit of a problem with that argument for those reasons like why you know if i come into contact with the virus you know i have i have no choice but if i choose to be vaccinated one dose, two dose, possibly three, because I'm pretty confident the boosters will be coming at one point. Um, they already are in other parts of the world. And you know that, that, that risk dramatically increases each time, in my opinion. Again, not a doctor, just based on what I've seen. Right. Um, anyways, you know, there's also uh, other things like multi-system multi inflammatory syndrome. Um, and it's even in children, which I think the CDC says it's uh, related to the disease, but there's also some cases of it possibly being correlated with vaccine. And that, that's really scary. Um, again, you'd have a, a medical professional would be able to explain that much further. Then, uh, you know, there's also issues around pregnancy. And this is right from the Public Health Canada, Public Health Canada website. Uh, Fetal growth restriction is one of the things they're monitoring. And I think they have recorded um, 37 spontaneous spontaneous abortions. So, I mean, I've heard people say, what? well, you know, the fertility issue, it's been debunked. I'm like, well, has it? Has it been debunked by who? We what wouldn't know. We Rounders? wouldn't. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not, I'm sorry. I don't trust, I don't trust mainstream media organizations or, people who work on behalf of big tech platforms to provide me with accurate scientific information. They're not the authority. Um, and we might not actually speaking to Dr. Peter McCullough, he had a warning. He's actually coming right out and just saying stuff. Now I feel yeah. like in the beginning yeah. he was kind of just beating around, but now he's like, do not give this thing to kids full stop. Yeah. End of story. Yeah. Stop this moratorium. We need to investigate it. Um, but anyways, one thing that he was mentioning was uh, all along the lines of the reporting which is that so much of it is like, what did they say about VARES? It's like between 10 and less than 1% is actually reported. Um, and it would be the same here in Canada. And uh, there's many, many signs because they're censoring those types of experts, doctors, and this actual documented information you're talking about, uh, they're not letting that get out to the mainstream. Then to me, there's a lot of signs that we shouldn't be just blindly trusting the numbers that they're giving us anyways. And especially when you got people like Dr. Byron Bridle, you've got, mm -hmm. you know, many Canadian scientists and doctors that have come out and have openly debunked those claims. So the question is, where are we hearing the claims? We're getting them from few sources and those sources, I'm sorry to say they're compromised in the fact that they are not operating in a scientific manner, 
right? Yeah, and that's the biggest thing. So science is not about censorship. Science is about if this was really the only thing, we got to get a solution. You would have everybody sitting in the room. Everybody would have a say. We would look for the best solution. They would have told us exercise, vitamin D, get lots of sleep, uh, you know, maybe some supplements or something, eat these foods. They would have been, oh, and we got some ivermectin and some other therapeutics and other things that we <laughs> yeah. could do in the meantime, until we have, remember that, like, cause they made us wait this whole time. Right. And that's the narrative. So they didn't do that. And instead it was, that doesn't exist. Those studies don't exist. That drug doesn't exist. Joe Rogan doesn't exist. None of these things yeah. exist except the vaccine and none of the injuries exist and none of the scientists saying it's, a, and this is where I go, okay, the, we're dealing with something else here. Yeah, no. And, you know, I think listeners, if, if, if they, if they're short on time and they want to know uh, a lot of the information that is relevant to what we're talking about, you know, like, uh, FLCCC, Frontline Critical COVID Care Alliance, Canadian COVID Care Alliance, their affiliate here in Canada, uh, British Ivermectin uh, Recommendation Group in the UK, um, and, and, and more recently, the globalcovidsummit.org, where it was like, it started off as 3,100 3, physicians. Um, signing on to this declaration, basically seeking freedom to actually treat patients. And now I think that number has grown to over 10 or 12,000. And that, that's like, wow. that's all the heavy hitters that you're talking about, right? Like people like Byron Bridal and Ira Berenstein here in Canada. And then people like Pierre Corey and Peter McCullough, Ryan Cole, people in the United States, Robert Bonlone, I think is the president of it. Like mm. the guy who, you know, again, he's being debunked as the founder of MRNA technology, but I don't know. He, People should ask him about that. Oh, they're, yeah. they, they whitewashed his whole background, uh, Wikipedia. Yeah, and I, I've had personal friends this has happened to. Wikipedia yeah. went in and just whitewashed the guy. You can see these people are actually under attack. It's not like, yeah. oh, hey, uh, mo world-renowned expert on that. We want to hear what you've got to say. It's just shut up, oh. sit down, don't talk. Yeah, no. And I mean, this, these, are, these are people that have dedicated their life to, to these specific fields, right? Like, I mean, Robert Malone. Garrett Vandenbosch, you know, they are both uh, have dedicated their life to vaccine development and technology. So, I mean, they're, they're pro vaccine, you know what I mean? They're, they're not against vaccines, but they, they were expressing concerns about these ones early on. And now they're, they're under attack for sure, which is again, as an investigator, that's a warning signal to me. Um, you know, if you if you listen to people like that, they talk about the VAERS data, and again, like you said, it's 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 believed to be vastly underreported. You know, there's even studies pre-COVID suggesting that. I think Harvard Pilgrim study is one of them. Um, you have uh, my own my own personal checking in on the VAERS system, trying to corroborate that myself. For my own personal knowledge, um, the number has changed. Uh, a few months ago, it was around the 12,000 mark for reported deaths, and then it dropped down to 6,000 some, and not sure why. I mean, I who knows? Maybe they were able to determine more cause of death, you know, that being generous to them. But uh, last night I checked 
and it was over 8,000. I think it was around 8,647. Uh, but again, that's not my specialty, right? Like when you try and navigate that system, there's a ton of fields to navigate and it's, it's not, it's not obvious that I'm doing it correctly, but that was the number that I got when I, when I searched that number off the CDC website. Um, well, and just quickly to, just to put that in perspective real quick for people, um, they took the H1N1 shot and the swine flu shot off the market with under 50 deaths reported yeah. to VAERS. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And so I don't care if people want to say, oh, that's an overestimation. I think you're just trying to justify right now. I, I think it's an underestimation. You said a Harvard study, numerous other studies. There's actually 11 different systems that collect data in the U.S. alone. It's not just VAERS. Yeah. And there's been other doctors that are coming out right now. There's a lawyer in the United States. Uh, Rents yeah, is uh, his last Rents, name. Yep. Rents. I'm trying to remember his first name. Um, Justin, they've, I think. Justin Rents. Yeah, they've pegged. So. And he's... He's doing a lawsuit right now, okay? And uh, they're they're looking at closer to 40 to 50,000 deaths from one reporting center alone within the first three days of getting the shot. That's one reporting center in the US alone, okay? Wow. So when we're talking about under-reporting, but even if we go with the numbers you just listed, and even if people were to say, well, that 8,000 and that fluctuating number, it's still over because anybody can report, which is not true. You have to get into the details on that. The truth is, if they're pulling other shots and other things off the market for less than 50 deaths, because that actually applies to the normal laws we used to adhere to and hold the pharmaceutical industry accountable for, then I think we're well past that. And I think because there's still, if they want to get rid of anti-vaxxers and people holding back this whole thing, then answer these questions, do yeah, the science, let's go. And I would, the problems. And I would say, let's go to a court of law where there's no, and just have a debate or we'll call Dana White and set up a debate octagon between Anthony <laughs> Fauci and Judy Mikovits or Dr. Malone. And let's just do that because that, I mean, I'm a martial artist. You're a, you're a warrior. I want to see this thing settled and I want to know the truth. And I'm not going to put myself, my life at risk uh, until I see the truth. And you know what, even if this thing was made out of you know, like freaking, you know, leprechaun tears or something because they're trying to force me to do it. I'm not taking it. I just don't, I don't work like that. Yeah. Well, so I guess, you know, numbers best to be confirmed by the, the medical and scientific community, not by me. I'm Absolutely. just expressing what I have found with my own open source searching, but two things I've heard that were very consistent from uh, Peter McCullough, uh, citing data from VAERS um, recently, like as of October 4th, and Paul Merrick in a previous interview I saw from him, he's one of like the heavy hitters from the FLCCC. He's one of the guys that that group went to to develop their early treatment protocols. Um, he he was using data from, he called, he referred to it as pharmacovigilance. It's, it's uh, within the WHO. Okay. And both of them, like so globally and uh, specific to the United States, they were saying that these COVID vaccines have been associated with more permanent dis disabilities and more death in 10 months than all other vaccines combined over the last 30 years. And that's so, just incredible. I mean, like, yeah. So obviously, when they say they're safe and effective, well, the safety is definitely up for debate if they would allow the debate to happen, right? If they would actually allow these credentialed 
scientists and physicians to actually have a voice and express their concern publicly, but instead they're just getting stuffed down and attacked and wiped off the internet, like you said, um, just to avoid misinformation, which I, for people that are putting their entire professional reputation and income on the line, like they're taking a pretty big sacrifice to spread misinformation, in my opinion. And like you said about uh, setting up a debate, um, my understanding, listening to Peter McCullough, is that Steve Kirsch, who's like some millionaire, who's like uh, the director general of the uh, early treatment uh, fund, he has offered $2 million on the table for anyone that would be willing to debate with people like Peter McCullough the uh, the early treatment protocols that the FLCC, like that group is is advocating um, the early treatment protocols. So Two million dollars. And no one has taken him up on that. He's offered another million just for anyone to supply any kind of um, rationale or explanation of something positive that the NIH, FDA, CDC has done in the COVID response. And my understanding is that no one has taken him up on that. And, and so there's been a few of these, uh, this has been a few, and for the trolls out there, anybody out there in the comment threads, don't waste your time trying to troll the channel. Go win yourself $2 million. Go win the debate. Yeah, 100%. On the big, it's right on the table. The gauntlet has been laid. What, yeah. what are you waiting for? Yeah, for what are you waiting for? Go, go make some money. Prove it. Yeah. Um, so for me, as someone who has experience in investigations and trying to weigh evidence, I guess the the big separation that I would say between the official narrative and the counter narrative would be the official narrative is stuffing, sorry, maybe I should, I'm a little biased, maybe. I, I tried to be very objective for a long time, but I'm definitely starting to tilt one way. The official narrative is that is these general vague statements about, you know, safe and effective, most effective tool, benefits outweigh the risk. And and additionally, like, um, you know, then you get their condescending verbal attacks against anyone who questions the narrative. And, and it, there seems to be a trend of like inappropriate analogies you know, mm. people like making analogies to these vaccines and and what they can do and comparing them to, to other items that really have no business in that same conversation, in my opinion. Like, for example, uh, one of the videos that we were instructed to watch through uh, internal, <laughs> internal sources, this compelling video from uh, a chief medical advisor to, the, to our organization, the, the RCMP, um, was comparing the vaccines to body armor and seatbelts. As police officers, we wear seatbelts and we wear body armor to protect ourselves. And it was, you know, it was labeled as like, watch this compelling video. And then when I watched it, it was like a two minute video. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like you're, you're comparing something that I wear on the outside of my body that has been around for years that I know the limitations and the advantages of and you're comparing that to something that's a novel technology being injected into my body, which once it's in there, there's no going back, right? Like, I don't know what that can do inside of me. I've, you know, as we've seen, like 
the, the people who are most likely to suffer from cardiac events are people under 40 years old that are male. And I'm, I'm 39, but I still fit that bill, right? And, and predominantly, it seems to be in healthy, active people. Anyway. Well, and just uh, I, the, the seatbelt one, I did a post about this. Uh, this is, that's amazing. Like, wait, okay, your flak jacket's a good thing or your, your body armor. You get to take your body armor off. You know it does protect you. And it doesn't cause Bell's palsy or thrombosis or heart attacks or anything like that. It prevents death from being shot. Uh, a seatbelt yeah. is a physical item that you put on in your car. And you know what? Even if you decided to sneak it and not wear it, you're not prevented from entering a restaurant if you decided to not wear a seatbelt on the way, get out, and then go inside the That's restaurant. Correct. Your freedoms are not put on hold. Worst case, you're going to get a fine. Uh, and we could even debate the merits of that. But hey, it's it's not comparable whatsoever. No, I don't think so. And so I, I guess I, I on the the safety and uh, of it, I would just like to close out with um, the best information that I was able to find was actually from the 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 companies, the manufacturers' fact sheets. Because I mean, I could I can't access their clinical trials. I tried, but I couldn't. Apparently, you need to be a, a physician, a researcher, and pay for them. Um, but the fact sheets are accessible, and that that was actually the most detailed information I was able to find. And even they, on their most updated versions, acknowledge some of the serious events. Um, you know, and then when you talk about efficacy, we're seeing that the protection wears off within a few months. And the language has really changed, even from uh, public health websites, specifically the CDC. Uh, you know, it, it changed from it's the best tool to you're less likely to be infected and spread to now fully vaccinated people can be infected and spread the Delta variant, right? We're seeing boosters rolling out in Israel, someone that's farther ahead of us in the schedule. I think uh, 1.5 million people lost their green pass because they haven't been boosted. So, you know, that, 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 will that says something, here. right? Like you might think, I, Oh, I I'll take a jab. Likely come here. Yeah. I'll take a jab right. to get my freedom back. Oh wait, I got to take two jabs. Okay. I'll wait, take the two jabs I three. and I got to take three. And they're even talking about four. And they're so talking about fourth one there already. Yeah. And, and, and they're having outbreaks like crazy. And there's something very ironic that happened where Sweden, which has been the crown jewel of I an example that. staring us in the face, yep. doesn't have any of these lockdowns, mandates, masking, all that stuff. And they actually blocked access of flights from Israel to Sweden because of concern <laughs> of people coming yep. from the most highly vaccinated country in the world to the probably one of the least vaccinated places and bringing a Delta variant there. And so there's yep. some things that are happening that just fly right in the face of what we're being told. Well, I mean, um, I suspect... I mean, I guess one thing I would like to say before I move on is like, from me, my personal standpoint, through all of the research I've done, all of the reading that I've done, if I found compelling evidence that there was a vaccine that was safe, or sorry, that was effective at preventing infection and spread, and even if it was relatively safe, they wouldn't have to man mandate me to take it. Right. If I thought that it was actually effective at spreading disease, 
I would probably do it because like I said, I've, I've taken many other risks for people. That, that's not the issue for me. The issue for me is that it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. And it carries a tremendous amount of risk despite the fact that it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. So to me, it's illogical. Um, I should probably move on. <laughs> yeah, let's get through this, but I don't want to keep interrupting you. You get me all excited, no. Daniel. I want to get in there, but I yeah. want to just give you the floor. So we, we talked about your, and that was brilliantly stated, and it was simple to understand, and I can give people sources to the end of the earth on everything you're talking about if they want. But uh, let's go to the next bit there that you have, because I know you had some things you really want to get out. So let me just sit back and I'm going to give you the floor. Okay. Okay. So I guess one more thing that I would talk about when I was, when I was really starting to look into things, something that I discovered that really, really sat wrong with me that I became very angry and upset about, and I really started to mistrust uh, the public health officials and the, and the mainstream media was their, their demonization of off-label drug protocols and their censorship and suppression of early treatment protocols. And, you know, you've seen it. We've all seen it in the media. You know, they've attacked hydroxychloroquine early on, and then the it's been like a concerted effort to suppress anything related to ivermectin. And so I just did a quick, well, it wasn't that quick, but I'll try and lay it out quickly, comparison compared to what is actually being used. So have you heard of remdesivir? Okay, so remdesivir for the people who don't know is the current kind of standard antiviral being used in ICUs as opposed to ivermectin. In June, Dr. Fauci, have you covered this in previous podcasts? Uh, here and there. So this is actually good. You're doing the remdesivir because I've only brushed okay. it. So go with it. Okay. So remdesivir is an antiviral uh, manufactured by Gilead Sciences. And in June, 2020, Dr. Fauci announced it to the White House for um, basically showing that, pronouncing that it had, it had showed uh, effectiveness against the Ebola virus and that there was other studies from Gilead Sciences that showed its, its benefit for antiviral properties for Ebola and for COVID-19 and basically saying it was safe and effective for both. So I actually found that information. Um, when you look at the Ebola study, it was from 2018 to 2019. I think it was a one-year study. It was in four different treatment groups, four different regions of Africa, Remdesivir performed the worst out of all four treatment options, 53% mortality. I mean, it's, wow. Ebola. it's a real serious disease, right? But mm. out of the four treatment options, remdesivir was the worst performing. And I think it was even pulled early in the trial. That's how poorly it performed. And yet he was pronouncing that it was safe and effective. Uh, and then I looked at the Gilead Sciences data, uh, four studies from them. And they, you know, uh, one study was for severe patients. This is all COVID related, severe patients. One was for moderate patients and one was for healthy volunteers. And then there was another um, ACTT. That's the, like the identifier of the study. Right. Anyways, they were promoting a 65% improvement 
from their information. And you can get this all from their website. That's where I found it all. I read the data information. Um, they don't actually provide the actual studies, but I read the information right from Gilead's website. And then, but if you look, the CDC, Public Health Canada, WHO, they're all saying that there's insufficient evidence for the use of ivermectin in COVID-19. So quickly, I did a real in-depth look at, uh, at the evidence supporting ivermectin. And if you look at remdesivir in total, including the Ebola study and all the Gilead Sciences study, it was a it was it received authorized um, emergency use authorization for COVID in the United States. Canada quickly followed. It was a total of fifteen hundred and seventeen patients. It costs thirty one hundred dollars U.S. for a five day course of treatment. Oh wow! And Gilead claims that it's um, sixty five percent improvement. That can be debated also, but again, I'm not the person for that. I'm just trying to lay out the, the contrast and the quality of evidence. Then if you look at the ivermectin, if you go to ivmmeta.com, that's a real-time meta-analysis that people are um, updating regularly about all the information coming in regarding that. And so I've read all three meta-analysis around ivermectin and all of that information is contained within this one IVM now. Um, if you look at all studies, there's 63 uh, with over 47,000 patients and 625 authors. If you look at just the peer reviewed studies, because that's what everybody wants, there's 44 of them, 17, over 17,000 patients and over 466 authors. If you look at just the randomized control, that's it, yep. If you look at just the randomized control trials, was like what everyone is saying is lacking for ivermectin. There's 30 of them, over 6,000 patients, and over 350 authors. Well, and then you see in some public health organizations, I can say Alberta Health Services for certain has tried to say that uh, insufficient evidence for ivermectin based on the meta-analysis being flawed because the Elgazar study out of Egypt has been accused of fraud. Well, this IVMmeta.com has taken all of that into account and they've even conducted the meta-analysis removing all studies that are questionable for any kind of reason, including the Elgazar, the Carvala one out of Peru, and a number of other ones. And they even, they go through all of that if you read through that document. And even after all of the exclusions, there's still 47 studies, over 37,000 patients, 518 authors. So, I mean, when they say that there's insufficient evidence, they are lying. They are deliberately misleading people. It exists. Right. It's been used all over the world, including India, all kinds of countries that don't have the same vaccine access and the same healthcare infrastructure that Western societies do. Um, even Japan, Japan is heavily using it is my understanding and has almost like obliterated their COVID problem. Um, and when you look 
at their improvements as the average over all of those different categories for prophylaxis or prevention, it's 84 to 86%. So that's almost on par with the best that the vaccines claim to have. Right. Um, early treatment, it's 62 to 73% uh, range. And for late treatment, which is the worst, right? Like it, all of these people who've been advocating for these treatments are saying like, you've got to treat this early. If you let it get too long, it's really hard to bring people back. And the, even the late treatment is showing like between 20 and 45% improvement. Um, so that's a lot of numbers I just threw at you. And where I find that relevant to our public health officials is I went on our public health website and I examined every vaccine trial and every therapeutic trial authorized by the Canadian government. For the vaccine trials, 17 out of 18 have a numerical identifier, NCT, number, 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 goes on for a long time. If you click on that link, it takes you right to the NIH website. So 17 out of 88 have ties to the NIH. A lot of them are collaborated and partnered mm -hmm. with Canadian researchers, Canadian universities, etc. I don't know to what extent, but they all have links to the NIH, which is who Fauci works for. Right. He were, he's head of the NIAID, which is a subgroup of the NIH. Right. <clears throat> and he is the he's the authority in the United States. Right. And so I suspect that our people are just following whatever his lead is. So then when you go to the therapeutics and you look through every therapeutic trial that is authorized by the Canadian government, there's 91 of them, 73 of the 91. Again, link, numeric link, takes you right to the NIH website, Dr. Fauci, links back to them. Out of 91, zero, zero clinical trials authorized by our government are related to ivermectin. Wow. So that's, sorry, just to break this down. So, so you're talking in general, therapeutic studies, 91. Mm -hmm. Right, so they're th they're studying the efficacy of therapeutics in general, right? Yeah. And out of all of those, first of all, they're all just passing the ball to the NIH in the states, which means our government isn't doing jack. And which the is second pretty much standard for us, right? <laughs> we we rely true. on the United States for just about everything, right? Which I mean, we can, yeah. But then also, out of the ninety-one on general therapeutic study, not a single one of those studies from our government and the NIH are about ivermectin. Not one, zero. And uh, I, I confirmed that. So I had seen that earlier and then I just confirmed that. Incredible. Yesterday or the day before, 91. And when you think about all of the attention it has and all of the countries that are using it and all of the physicians and scientists that are advocating for the use of it in the treatment of this disease. It is, to me, it's neglect to, to not even take a look at that. Like as an investigator, I am, if I am investigating a crime, I am duty bound to look at every lead to determine whether it's credible or it's not. And to me, when they get up in front of the camera and consistently say, we're doing everything we can to stop this. 
They are lying. They are deliberately lying and misleading people. And in my opinion, it is a crime against humanity to deny people the possibility of this treatment, which they are doing. Doctors in this country, I'm sure you've heard this from people. I know I've heard it from the Canadian COVID Care Alliance. Doctors have been ridiculed. They've been attacked. They've been censored. They've been threatened with removal of their license. I think uh, one doctor here in Ontario, I think his name's uh, Dr. Patrick Phillips, actually was disciplined by his college uh, or his association for prescribing ivermectin to patients. And yet, oh, I think that's one of the biggest points of contention for me is that we could be saving people and we're knowingly tying the hands of our healthcare professionals and telling them you will not use this. And then and then going in the media and making it, you know, talking about how it's only for veterinary use and it's only horse dewormer. Like when you see yeah, that in the United just... States and you see that here in Canada with our mainstream yeah. media, it's like maybe people, you know, the small number of people that may have tried the veterinary medicine they wouldn't have to if their doctor was allowed to prescribe it to them. Maybe our hospitals wouldn't be overwhelmed, according to their narrative, if people were allowed to treat outpatients, right? Our, our current standard of care in this country, if you test positive, is go home, hydrate, rest. If you start to have trouble breathing, come to the hospital. And it's been like right? that since day one. So this whole time. Since day one. They've been sending people home. It's like, okay, so if I just stay at home, can I take some ivermectin with me or what? Yeah, no. So, I mean, I don't have, well, I'm skeptical about the overwhelming of the hospital situation. I know that other people would fight me on that hard, but how can you say that if you're willing to lay off hundreds, thousands of healthcare workers in the middle of this fourth wave? Well, the argument is, in my opinion, the best argument is this, because I've spoken directly to doctors and nurses in numerous provinces in this country. And thanks to all of you out there for reaching out to me. You know who you are, um, that they have said, yep, they're being overwhelmed at certain times and certain days and certain seasons because of a staffing issue that already existed in this country before COVID. So they're trying to say well, it's because of COVID and the overwhelming numbers of people, and it's because of the anti-vaxxers and blah, blah, blah. But when you talk to actual honest medical professionals on the ground who are turning in their careers over this, okay, that's got to ring some bells. um, Then that should make you think about it at the very least. Yeah. I mean, in police work, we would call that a clue, right? Like something is something is worth investigating here or taking a closer look at. Um, I better move on to my points about freedom. Yeah, we could probably, we could talk forever. We could, and you're doing great by the way. And thank you for this. Thank you so much for this because hearing it from someone like you, I think is very valuable and you've done a great job. Uh, We just jumped over the hour mark. We can go as long as you want, but I just want to let you know. So we've done, your pro- we talked about the Mounties group and salute to all of you and thank you for your service and we're behind you. Okay. We need warriors standing up in this society. So thank you 
from the bottom of our hearts. We'll support you. Okay. Uh, you've broken down your reasons personally for having the questions that are very valid. They're scientific questions. They're not crazy. You didn't go to conspiracytheory.com to get these questions. This is, you've done your research. You are a responsible citizen. You're proactive, which I can't say the same about so many other people that I know, sadly. Um, and then you've illustrated many of these other issues. You pointed to these experts. There's so much we could unpack with this. Um, what would you like to say to people? Cause I know you had a very important question to ask them. Well, it's okay if we go a bit longer. Oh, we go as long as you want. You're, you're the floor is yours, brother. Um, cause I did spend a good amount of time talking about just, the scientific concerns. Um, but you know, as a, as a police officer, our number one priority in this country is to protect the rights and freedoms of our citizens. And what's happening right now, I mean, you've just heard all of our, you know, all of my reasons why I'm exercising my freedom to choose and why I think other people are completely justified in exercising their freedom to choose. You know, if you, if you look at our charter of rights and freedoms, you know, section two, section, section two, six, seven, 15, they are all guaranteeing fundamental freedoms of citizens of this country, you know, whether it be free from um, freedom of conscience and religion, uh, expression, beliefs, opinions, freedom of the press, association, assembly, uh, the ability to move our mobility, which you can see that the government knows that they're dancing a fine line there because yeah. they're restricting air and rail traffic domestically because the charter specifically says every citizen, every citizen has the right to enter, remain and leave Canada. So, hmm, they know they're dancing that line. Um, detainment, you know, illegal after, detainment and arrest. Like if, if we're talking 100%. about the, like oh. you come back into Canada um, and you have to stay in these quarantine hotels at your own expense, that kind of stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, there's, they are really pushing the boundaries on, uh, well, crossing boundaries of our individual rights and freedoms. And that is unacceptable. Like in a law enforcement setting, if you do that, your case is tossed, right? And, you know, we've had, you know, murder suspects have walked because of charter breaches, right? In this, like, that, that's how seriously the court takes the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And to be honest, I'm surprised we haven't heard more from the judicial community about the, these violations of rights. Um, I was pretty disappointed in the Ontario Human Rights Commission. Oh, me too. Kind of supporting or saying that, you know, the choice not to take a vaccination is not really grounds for a, a human rights complaint, which I disagree with. <laughs> Who are these again, people? Yeah, I agree. The, the hypocrisy of this whole situation with our government, this specific government in particular, and the Human Rights Commission, you know, they will defend or they, uh, they virtue signal and pretend to be the champion of every single person's individual rights for every single reason except this. That to yeah. me is unacceptable, unacceptable. 
Um, and we have a charter just to say it, it just correct me if I'm wrong, but we have a charter, which is supposed to be a contract between the people of the country that pay taxes to a government that we hired to manage our affairs and ensure our freedom and protect our freedom. And so yeah. if they are, if I were to breach laws on this level, I'm pretty sure I'd have someone like you at my door, right? And it's interesting that these health officials are getting away with it. Have you found, I know we talked about this, have you found any legal, legitimate backing behind everything they're saying where they're saying, well, we've got this public health act and we've got this emergency or reopening act, but it's like, but there's no law. And even Trudeau coming out with it's mandated for employees. He didn't write that into law. Joe Biden no. didn't write it into law in the U S they're just no. saying it, you know? No, I, I, I have looked hard and I've, I've asked even just on the provincial level here in Ontario, I'm part of a first responders group for, uh, Ottawa fire, you know, Ottawa, EMS, police, first responders, um, and I've been asking people like, "Hey, okay, like, I'm in, I'm the federal enforcement part of things, so I, I haven't been on the front line. I haven't had to enforce any of these ridiculous COVID measures. Thank God, because I wouldn't have anyway. Good and and." the consensus seems to be, well, you know, the, the, the trespass act maybe. And, but it's, it's sketchy at best in my opinion. So I've read the entire reopening Ontario act. I've read the entire trespass act and I still don't know how that could possibly be used to supersede the charter of rights and freedoms. Um, you know, and there's, you know, there is a clause in the charter section 33 notwithstanding clause, but that to my knowledge has not been invoked at all during this time period. And interesting number, by the way, sorry, I just had to throw that out there. Section 33. I'm going to have to go read that one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then if you look at section 52 of the charter, that's says right in it, the constitution is the Supreme law of Canada. And essentially it says any other law that is in contradiction with a provision of the constitution is of no force and not in effect. And further to that, if you go down to the Canadian immunization report or the Canadian report on immunization from 1996, right in page nine of it, uh, under heading number one, immunization in Canada, there is a paragraph that starts with, unlike some countries, Immunization cannot be made mandatory in Canada because of the Constitution. And if the Constitution is the supreme law of Canada, then I have I have yet to find anything compelling that they are actually lawfully taking away these freedoms from people and enforcing these mandates. I suspect what they're trying to do is They put this information out there knowing that most people won't check and most people will just accept that as the new law. It's what we have to do. It's just a part of life now. So that if they condition people long enough to that thought process, that if they try to produce legislation, it won't be opposed. I mean, that's a bit of speculation on my 
my part. But, but we kind of have to speculate there, right? Like we have to think about they're that. They're priming us is my yeah. belief. I believe that they're priming us for that. Quick question. Um, Quick question to throw yeah. at that. Then. Just because you are a trained officer, you've been doing this a long time. Were you taught about, I'm sure you were taught about the law and what law you enforce. And this probably, you're, you're knowledgeable about that. You're not a lawyer, but you're an enforcer of the law. Were you taught that the Charter of Rights in the Constitution was the highest law in this country? Yeah, 100%. That would have been your understanding, um, right? Yeah, nothing. My understanding is nothing, nothing trumps the Charter of Rights. And that's what we all agreed to. That's why we have a country. If we didn't have that guarantee, then we'd be like, well, we don't, like, we'd be like, let's just secede from the federal government. They're just taxing our, us to death anyways. The whole point was to have an agreed upon set of law that would protect everybody because we know we're going to live in a country with people where we don't agree on things. We have different religions, different ways of looking at the world, different perspectives on science, different favorite TV shows. You got to have something that's going to be like, okay, at the very least, we as Canadians agreed on this contract between us and the government, right? So if they're breaching that, what does that make them? Yeah. And I mean, so to me, the charter, the constitution act, which the charter is contained in that immunization report, in my mind, that should be enough that this should be like full stop. You don't have authority to do this. Unfortunately for me, I don't think I'm going to be in a position very long where I'm going to be able to do much about that. Um, you know, but then there is a number of other acts, a number of other laws existing in this country already that they're really pushing the boundaries on, if not completely violating. Like, in my opinion, like you're talking about the Canadian Human Rights Act, um, uh, private privacy of the privacy act of Canada. And then there's uh, another one about protection of information, uh, protection of health information act. Um, there's also anti-discriminatory discrimination yep. laws, right? Like you can't yeah, discriminate against. A, yeah. There's a, each province has legislation specific to the protection of people's private medical information. Um, you know, uh, and then if you really, if you want to start pushing boundaries, like you can start talking about the Crimes Against Humanity Act. I mean, my personal opinion, if you're knowingly withholding treatments and preventing physicians from providing potential life-saving treatment to people, that's a crime against humanity, in my opinion. Well, uh, people are dying as a result of it. It's criminal yeah. negligence. Could you actually explain that to people, criminal negligence? Because, I mean, I'll go... I have my opinion on this is beyond that, but at the very least it's criminal negligence. So if I'm a drunk, if I decide to get totally tanked and get in my truck and go for a drive, I didn't intend to hurt anybody, but because I'm inebriated and I made that choice and I accidentally kill someone walking across the road, I'm guilty. I don't know if that would be called murder, be called manslaughter with criminal negligence or something along those lines. And I would be held accountable for my choice to, break the law of driving while intoxicated, right? So at the very least, we could be talking about criminal negligence with what you're saying. At the worst, when they're knowingly doing it, the evidence is out that these things work and we could change this whole thing overnight and they're not looking at it and they're doing all these other actions. Now we can start asking the questions, are these people, is there grounds for arrests? Is there grounds for something even more uh, criminal in nature? But I don't want you to speculate. I'm just kind of putting that out there for people to think about. 
Well, I mean, like the the driving drunk and killing someone that would there's a specific offense in the criminal code for that. It's impaired driving causing death. Um, right, but okay. like criminal negligence would be more along the line of you knowingly omit performing an action knowing that it could be dangerous to someone else. Mm, okay. You know what I mean? Um, so that's why I think it would, that would probably apply in this instance. Like if you, if there was, if there was a, an investigation, which proved that people were knowingly preventing physicians from providing life-saving treatment, I think you could make a case for that. Definitely. Hmm. But again, I'm a cop. I'm not yep. a lawyer. I'm not a judge. But we're just speculating, opinion, guys. We're in, just speculating. In my opinion, yeah, I think like I I feel pretty strongly that this is knowing what I know. You you can't look at that information and just shuck it off. In my opinion, like that, right. it's just too strong. Um, you know, you, you mentioned the Nuremberg the Nuremberg. Nuremberg code. And I know like I've seen, I've seen some recent media articles debunking uh, people's claims that this apply, that the Nuremberg co code applies to this. That's so incredible. That word debunking. Debunking. Um, How do you yeah. debunk the Nuremberg code? <laughs> well, the two issues that I found in that article is from CTV news uh, out of Edmonton, I believe. Um, were that the vaccines aren't experimental, they're approved, which actually they're not, they're authorized for use under interim order. And that's, you can find that right from the public health webs, public health Canada website, it says that. So they're not approved. They're authorized under interim order. So again, it's that media's way of manipulating language to make people right. believe what they want people to believe. <clears throat> and then I mean, if you look, I think I actually wrote it down. I didn't find it for J&J &J or AstraZeneca, but Pfizer estimated clinical trial end date is January 31st, 2023. For Moderna, October 27th, 2022. And that's for safety monitoring of their phase three individuals from the individuals in their phase three cl clinical trials. So technically, I think an argument could be made that they still are experimental or at least investigational, which is, I believe, the terminology that they use in the, the United States EUAs. Um, and I think like the Nuremberg argument that some people are making about these mandates is that it's not so much even about the experimental well, maybe, yeah, maybe it is the experimental status of the, of the vaccines, but it's also about the coercion, right? It's the consent That's issue, right. right? That code specifically says that individuals participating in this have to have informed consent without duress or coercion. There's, that That's right. I'm summarizing, but those are the two things that stand out the most to me, the duress the informed consent without duress and with their, without co uh, coercion. Obviously, if you're at risk of losing your job and losing your income, that's duress. And I would say coercion, right? Like it's, it's, they're trying that's to right. get people compliance for some 
percentage that they feel they have to reach for I think uh, they want a hundred percent now. They used to say well, it was sixty percent, then seventy percent. Now they're just yeah, like I mean, we need a hundred percent and if you don't do it, we're gonna gonna get kill your jobs and eventually start rounding you up. Like that's the feeling people have. Well that's another point. Like when when are when is enough enough? When are we gonna reach a point where they're satisfied? Are we? Will we reach a point where they're satisfied? I mean, like you said, some of those earlier percentages have been met and surpassed long ago, and the goalposts yeah. just seem to keep shifting to the right. Um, or the left, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, so there's plenty of legislation out there. Uh, there are groups out there. I'm sure you've probably mentioned them before on podcast, Actions for Canada, places like that, where you can get a lot of really good information about information um, regarding to your individual rights and freedoms. And I would encourage anyone who hasn't done that to, to try and do some research on that. Um, I guess another thing that I would like to talk about before we, before we conclude, I apologize if I'm going too long. No, not um, at all. Not at all. Take is, your time. Uh, a big reason, a big reason why we decided that we needed to go public was because unfortunately our union has not come out with a very strong stance publicly on our behalf. And that's disappointing. Um, you know, publicly, in the news, they supported our freedom to choose, but then they, you know, in that same breath, acknowledge that there are consequences to our choices. And you don't necessarily see other police unions using that same language. You know what I mean? I don't believe the Toronto Police Association used that language. I'm not sure about Ottawa police, but, you know, if I look to the United States, like the Chicago police union has taken a pretty hard stance and said, like, you can expect to lose 50% of your police force. I don't think that would be our percentages, but, you know, they're, they're at least they're pushing back. Uh, Baltimore police union is instructing their members not to comply and to stand in solidarity with each other. Whereas it kind of feels to us that we're being left on our own a little bit you know they're they're offering to support us nav with seeking duties uh, accommodations like for medical and religious accommodations um, they're offering support for navigating the leave without pay process but you know so far the overwhelming message that members in our group have been receiving when we've been questioning them is that they're not going to challenge the vaccine policy because they well the language that they're using is that uh, a charter challenge to the vaccine policy would likely fail and they've quoted uh, an article in our collective agreement specific to uh, occupational health and safety and how the employer being the treasury board, treasury board secretariat has to make uh, all reasonable provisions for the occupational health and safety of the members. And that the policy is most likely to be found reasonable 
by an arbitrator um, because they've carved out um, specifics for duty duty to accommodate and for notice a notice period which being they had announced a federal mandate back in August may be coming but then they didn't commit to it until October 6th and gave us till October 29th hmm. um, and then so the sentiment that I've seen the most common in uh, correspondence from people is that the um, a collective challenge would most likely fail therefore it's it's not a justifiable use of um, a justifiable expense of our union dues so that's disappointing um yeah for sure you know i uh, this is they're fairly new you know the npf is a fairly new thing the rcmp went the vast majority of its existence with no union and we were basically at the at the whim of the treasury board they could decide pretty much whatever they wanted that's why that's uh, a big reason why we didn't we weren't competitive uh salary wise with other big police forces in this country for many many years npf got in they negotiated a, a significant raise for us which was appreciated but i think that like that was long overdue this is probably their first big test and i would say they're falling down on the job that's me speaking um do you think they probably have all kinds of pressure around them too? Likely. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know what they have to lose, to be honest. I don't know yeah. what they have to lose. Why not push back? You know what I mean? Like we have, uh, it, this is exactly what you're in place for. And other unions are pushing back. Um, they could be ideologues. They but, could be just the people at the top. They're well, total, that, you know, drank the Kool-Aid be, right in the game. That could be uh, that could be part of the case. You know, I know um, individual members have had inconsistent experiences. Um, my personal experience dealing with the guy local here in my division, he's been pretty good. But mind you, most of my questions have been around options about leaving. Um, whereas people that have really pushed them on whether they're going to grieve things and whether they're going to take a harder stance. Um, the, the responses have been less than desirable from our standpoint. Um, you know, and even, even prior to the official announcement of the policy, people were asking questions and we kept getting this, oh, wait and see, wait and see approach, wait till we have the policy in hand. And that seems to be an issue within our organization when it comes like not just specific to this, like, oh, wait and see, wait and see. Well, sometimes that's appropriate, but when the time crunches on and people are about to lose their income to provide for their family, wait and see is not what we need right now. We need people to take action. We need you to start trying to put uh, measures in place to give our employer and the federal government pause to think, whoa, maybe we, maybe we need to reconsider our position because we can't afford to lose a whole bunch of members. I mean, the RCMP is already chronically short staffed in many places. Can we afford to lose more of them? I don't think so. Especially if you're talking about the contract provinces outside of Ontario and Quebec, where we yeah. are the provincial police, 
you know, like staff shortages are nothing new in, in, in the RCMP. So I think that's a real issue that they might face. And and they must see it. Uh, I, they must see I, this. Like, how do they not well, see? I, part of me is starting to think, sorry to say this, but part of me is starting to think that with all the government just plodding on as if nothing's happening when they're losing thousands of medical professionals, they're losing police officers, they're losing firefighters, they're losing all kinds of people. It's as if they're just trying to flush the system of anybody that yeah. will resist the federal government. And then they're going to, what are they going to do? Bring a bunch of people in to replace or, or not? Maybe, <laughs> I don't I don't know what they're thinking. Maybe they're just crazy. Yeah. Um, you know, even, even before the initial announcement, we were, you know, um, one of the guys who is more likely a founder of this organization, um, he was really even just putting pressure on them to say like, hey, like there's members out there that are stressed. They're feeling isolated. Can you at least put out a message put out a, a force-wide broadcast saying like we recognize the pressure some people might be under we are reaching out to let you know that you have support you're not alone and they were even hesitant to do that he even offered his own uh personal information for members if they needed some support and, and the reply he got was like well it's inappropriate to provide another member's information when they're not part of our peer-to-peer -peer program or or an official member of the npf like, well who else is going to do it? You know, I mean, our yeah, own commissioner, yeah. our own commissioner in her, her most recent broadcast to us specific about complying with this mandate, she's even using the same language as the prime minister about like responsible, you know, when he's talking about people traveling, he's saying, well, the responsible Canadians who took the vaccine deserve to be safe when they travel on airplanes and, and by train, like, so deserve to be safe from the rest of us. Well, they're creating that us versus them. This is the us versus well, them. That, you know, it's crazy. If the vaccines work. Aren't they safe? <laughs> yeah, this is right? the argument. Yeah, I know. Right. And so, and then, uh, but our own commissioner is using that same language at the very end of her most recent broadcast that I read, it was like, Thank you to all of the responsible, like I'm paraphrasing, but thank you to all the responsible members who did the right thing to protect themselves and to protect others and to protect their families. And I was just like, wow. Here's the responsible what thing. Facing. What we're doing That's right we're now, Daniel. Here. Yeah. What we're doing right now is a responsible thing to question yeah. known liars and criminals and to question uh, what we're being told because we don't work for the government. The government works for us. So as citizens, if we want to maintain our freedom, we have the responsibility to learn what the law is, study the science, learn all the discussions, watch these debates, inform ourselves, take care of our health. Take care. That's responsibility. What they're asking for people to do is to shut off their brains, turn on the television, do what you're told, obedience without question. That's what yeah. they want. And they need the rhetoric and the language and they need all their parrots down the chain to repeat that rhetoric and language so that they can get the compliance that they're looking for. It has nothing to do with the words they're saying. This is all, it's textbook propaganda. It's, un, it's egregious. Yeah, no, I mean like, I had already had my suspicions long ago that this was way more about control than it was about public health. Mm. But they they only confirmed those suspicions to me when they're number one, 
they won't even acknowledge the strength of natural immunity. Again, that's a whole other scientific debate for the experts, but yep. you're not even willing to acknowledge people that have recovered and you're still saying that they have to abide by those same policies. That's about control. It's yep. not about public health. The people that are working from home, like federal employees that are working from home remotely, and yet they still have to provide proof of vaccination just in order to keep their job, even though they're not having any contact with the public. No, it's that doesn't yeah. fly with me. That I, I feel like that is a clear indication that this is about control. And I, again, I'm about to wander into some speculation here, but just something for the audience to think about. Why do you think that the RCMP is predominantly targeted in this vaccine policy when two thirds of the federal public service is not, including the Canadian forces? Hmm. I would suggest, that's how a, law, a lawyer would speak. I would suggest that if you get the national police force on board, you can use them as an example and maybe other federal agencies will start to fall in line. And beyond that, if you are so inclined to keep pushing authoritarian mandates and restrictions in this country, and you're willing to challenge people's charter protected rights and freedoms, you can only do that if you have the control or the support of the police and the security forces. If you don't right. control the police, you don't control the population. So again, like those are some strong, that's a strong opinion. I'm aware of that. I know a lot of people will be upset with me for saying something like that, but I don't feel we're far. I don't feel we're far. I think our, our society is degenerating faster than we would like to admit. And I'm, I'm legitimately concerned about what the future is going to look like for our country if we continue down this path. I think, right, like you said, right now we have an opportunity to take a stand. They have, like you said, they have no power if we stand up and say, no, we're not doing it. Like when Doug Ford tried to uh... Oh, sorry guys, looks like he just lost his connection. Um... Am I still in the air? Let me make sure. Am I still here? Let me know in the chat. Are we live? Hopefully not getting any funny business going on here. I'll see if he calls back in. Oh, there we go. Hey, Daniel, you okay? Okay, good. I was like, right as you're saying that, I'm like, no, I know. they got him. I know, okay. I'm sorry. Um, but like when, when Doug Ford was trying to impose more restrictive measures and trying to basically trying to uh, Ontario population that the police are going to have greater enforcement measures and they're going to be able to stop you randomly and basically checking for compliance of COVID measures. I was so proud of the Ontario police organizations. A, a, a large majority of them publicly said, no, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. Unfortunately, our organization did not express that same sentiment. 
And unfortunately, our union's response to the BC government when they were talking about similar things was that, well, just so you know, we're going to need more police officers to conduct more enforcement measures. Ugh, when I saw that, I was just sick to my heart and to my stomach that that was how we would respond when our our brothers and sisters in law enforcement in Ontario said, no, government, too far. We're not doing it. Anyways, um, you know, I guess one other thing I would like to just touch on quick, I know we've been going a little long here, is, uh, you know, our organization. We have this Vision 150. That's like the big commissioner's tagline about modernization in our police force, which we need. But it's all been focused on, in my opinion, actions that without substance were or words without substance. You know what I mean? Like one of the big things that they keep talking about is mental health, mental health, mental health, mental health champion this, mental health champion that. Words, right? They yeah, haven't okay. addressed any of the real issues that are affecting the mental health of our membership. And right now, they are really, really damaging the mental health of a lot of our members, members that are really feeling the pressure. And I even know some that have even expressed some serious uh, concerning behaviors about what could happen to them if, hmm. uh, if, we, if we keep going down this road. And so... They say They've sadly they ignored that all the way. They've ignored yeah. the mental health all the way, mental health of children, the suicide 100%. rates. The, it's just, that's a whole other thing in itself. You know, I, um, we know people who work at the children's hospital here. And okay. it sounds like they, they are overwhelmed with mental health patients in the children's hospital here in, in uh, Ottawa. Um, this but there's no media problem. mention of that, is there? They're well, not actually, talking about those being the, overwhelmed. I think uh, one article recently was saying that, like, surprisingly, despite all of this, the suicide rate has dropped dramatically. And again, I don't believe anything I see in the mainstream yeah. media, and I haven't for a long time. As a police officer, I have seen how they twist stories over and over and over again to manipulate it to their benefit for that attention-grabbing headline. So, yeah, I don't trust it. But when it comes to the mental health aspect for the population and even specifically for us in law enforcement, like they say a lot, they don't do a lot. You know what I mean? Um, Just like Justin Trudeau. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's yeah. my opinion. That's not nah, your hey, opinion. Um, that's my opinion. Well, I don't think you're alone in that opinion. Um, I think I've covered the main points that I was hoping to discuss with you today. Um, do you have any last questions for me? I don't, uh, because there's so many avenues we could go on. I just want to say how um, honored I am that you chose my platform to come on, that you have uh, decided to stand up for what you believe in, what you swore as an oath to protect and defend, which is the freedom in this country. Uh, that you put your life on the line every day in your job and on a whole other level, especially the type of work that you do um, and that you have served well. And I feel so heartbroken that this is how 
you know, you're being repaid, which is basically see you later. If you don't comply, so many others are in your boat. And, uh, I personally, uh, I just, I just want to say a personal thank you, uh, for what you're doing and for your organization and for everybody involved, uh, all the people that are part of that, the police on guard for the, I value police. Um, I was backing the blue when there, all that craziness was going around about defunding polices, police and all this stuff. Uh, I personally, when I was a kid, I used to look up to the police. I was taught that I, I, I spoke to police. I went on ride alongs. I went on ride alongs for most of my teenage years. I used to just enjoy getting to know the officers in different places. And I just had respect for the job because I know what it entails. I know most people out there. Uh, wouldn't have what it takes to do that work, especially for what you guys get paid. It's obscene. Um, uh, you should be paid more. And now I have a heart, I'm heartbroken with the footage that I'm seeing from all over the world, as so many are, of police that are making really, really bad decisions um, and yeah. abusing their power. And um, yeah, I don't know if you, it, it, and, and this is the hard thing is because now, the media and the media loves that stuff. So now the image that people are getting is police are these Gestapo bad guys and all this. And sadly, there's too many examples of that being true. But at the same time, I'm like, yeah, but it's not everybody. Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's give them an opportunity. And so I, I went, look, I want to build a bridge on this platform. We have to mend this. We have to figure this out. And we're human beings. You have a, you have a family of a beautiful family. I have a family. I live in the same country you do. I love the same values that you do. The people in this chat watching this stream feel the same way for the most part, except for the trolls, but hey, we love them anyways. And we are here to try to find out what is the truth. That's the whole point of the show that I'm doing. And it just moves me. After the conversation we had the other night, Daniel, I was, I had a few sobby moments, man. I honestly, and it's just because it does my heart good to not just be some guy sitting in my house podcasting, thinking I'm the only crazy one out there, uh, but that we have people from the highest ranks in the land that are joining this fight for freedom and for truth. And so I just want to say a big salute to you and all the men and women that are serving in the police that feel the same way you do. Maybe they feel alone. Maybe they feel like they can't make change, but look at what you're doing right now. It doesn't take an army. One man can stand up, speak the truth as he knows it, take a stand. You form Instead of complaining about it, you guys went uh, like a, complaining about your union and going, oh, there's nothing we can do then and throwing your hands up. You guys did what people who love freedom do, which is create something out of nothing. You created this organization to make a stand, to put your name on it, to put your face out there. I know the risks that you're taking. And so uh, I just personally want to salute you for this service that you're doing and in doing this action of coming on this show and speaking the truth as you know it, uh, you are serving this country. And I want to thank you for that. Well, I appreciate that very much. Um, I guess I would just close out with, uh, have we mentioned the line in the sand yet? Oh, no, I'll let, we uh, saved that for the end. So I'll let okay. you do that one. Go ahead. Um, anyone who listens to this, whether you're law enforcement or not, I would really encourage you at some point in time to visualize what your line in the sand is in regards to what you're willing to let the government encroach in on your personal freedoms and your private life. They've crossed mine. That's why I'm doing this. And 
if we leave it unchecked, if we allow them to do it, they'll keep going. They'll keep taking more and more. Authoritarian governments don't happen overnight. It happens incrementally. And history has shown us that it is allowed to happen because the population allows it to happen. Do not allow it to happen. Visualize your line in the sand. What are you not willing to let them do? I'm not willing to let them force me to put something in my body that I don't believe is safe and even effective at what it's supposed to do. I, I don't want to be a doomsayer. I don't know where this will go from here. But left unchecked, it can get real nasty, especially when they are deliberately using language to try and divide the population. People can do horrible things in, when they are living in fear of the other. I don't, I don't advocate violent resistance. I'm saying peaceful noncompliance, but do not let them push you around. Do not. And to my law enforcement brothers and sisters out there, please think about your line in the sand. You know, we've seen the videos. Mums going to watch their kids play hockey in an arena. That's not a crime. That's not a crime. They got no business being arrested for, for doing that. Um, enjoying simple things that are societal norms, that's not crime. Having Spending the holidays with your loved ones, that is not a crime. And I will not be a part of enforcing such things. And I hope that other people in my position in this country feel the same. Uh, you know, we we're probably going to sacrifice some relationships over our differing viewpoints. That's reality. I've accepted that. But I do have to say, you know, a lot of my friends and colleagues have been supportive of my decision. But very few have expressed that they feel what is happening is wrong. And that's disappointing. I, I would expect more from Canadians in general. Don't let them take your freedom away. This is, I don't think this is just the beginning because we've been allowing things to happen since the beginning. Even I've been guilty of that. Um, but no more for me. And I really encourage people to think about what their line in the sand is. Visualize that so that you recognize when it's coming and that you are prepared to push back when the time comes. And that's, that's pretty much, I think, all I have to say right now. It's uh, 45 minutes past, but we were... It's okay. I always go over time, Daniel. It's all good. Um, listen, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. I'm with you on that. I concur. And uh, people out there, you know, think for yourself. Think for yourself. You've been given a brain. You should use it. It's, uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And um, you don't have to agree with everybody's opinion on everything. That's not what this is about. Because we're not about conformity. We're about free thought and we're about freedom and preserving freedom. 
And that's the last line. That's my line in the sand. It always has been, always will be. So, um, yeah, sorry, you have another point. Go right ahead. Oh, sorry. Um, I think we mentioned it already, but seek out, seek out that information from FLCCC, yes. COVID, Canadian COVID Care Alliance, um, globalcovidsummit.org, Robert Malone, Peter McCullough, Pierre Corey, Byron Bridal. You know, there's a variety of high profile people in Canada, in the US, UK, all over the world that are, they're speaking, they're speaking truth to power in, in my estimation, their, their information is so high quality, it can't be ignored. Absolutely. And there's so many, we can't even list them all. So um, that was amazing, Daniel. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Um, Mounties for freedom.ca. It's the number four, please go check it out. Support these people. Uh, we need to speak to our law enforcement. And uh, if there's any people in the military, in the medical service, in the government, in the legal profession, if you know something, say something, speak out. This is the time. Um, looks like I lost Daniel again there. Hopefully he jumps in real quick. I was just going to wrap it, but uh, I just want to let everybody know my platform's open uh, to anybody that wants to come out and, and say what they have to say. Um, you know, no judgment here. We just want to get the truth out. And uh, I want to thank you all for tuning in. Thank Daniel, his family, the Mounties for Freedom, Police on Guard for Thee, so many of these other great organizations. We're just going to grow. And what's interesting is that now the forces behind this are in a position where because everybody's waking up more and more to this fraud, because that's what it is, um, they are now forced to move the needle for totalitarian measures even further. And every step they move in that direction wakes up more people. So in my opinion, they're already in checkmate. It's just a matter of time. And I think that if you really are out there and you're on the fence, don't just only absorb yourself in all this data and numbers and all that kind of stuff that you, we probably don't have time to understand at all. Check your gut. What's your heart telling you? What's your intuition telling you? What's, what are you telling yourself? What's that voice within you telling you right now? Call it the voice of God, voice of reason, however you prefer to look at it. Listen to that. Use your own observational skills to look around at the world and ask yourself, is something wrong? What is it? You might not have all the answers, but it's the question that drives you. I, I said it in a show the other day. I didn't wake up because I got answers on anything. It was questions that woke me up to start looking at the world and researching and spending full-time hours looking into these things. It was questions that woke me up. It wasn't answers. So start with the questions, right? Oh, it looks like Daniel's back real quick. Hey, Daniel, yeah, looks like I lost you. I was just wrapping, but if you have any yeah. final comments, drop them right now, my friend. Go ahead. No. Uh, thank you so much. me a lot of accolades. Honors I mine. give that right back to you. Thank you for being uh, a source for people to get uh, censorship-free material. That's huge in this day and age. Uh, censorship is a major, major contributor to the degeneration of our society. I strongly believe that. So thank you so much for what you do as well. Um, Mounties for Freedom. We're also on various social media platforms, uh, Telegram, Instagram, Facebook, 
Twitter probably as well. I don't know for sure, to be honest. This is fairly new for all of us. Uh, you can probably find that information from the website. Very good. I hope you get lots of people following you and supporting you. Uh, thank you, Daniel. Uh, thanks to all the people involved. And thanks to everybody tuning into this live stream. Please help us share this out as far and as wide as possible. Uh, thank you all for your time. We'll wrap it there. Daniel, I'll say goodbye to you. Give your best to your lovely family and stay in touch because uh, I think this battle is about to heat up even more. So we'll be in touch as that goes down and uh, we'll we'll say goodbye for now. All right. So thanks, everybody. Right. Have a good one. We'll catch everybody Thank next you. time. And don't forget to tune in Friday at 7 p.m. Pacific time, 10 p.m. Eastern, where I'll be dropping a 90-minute chapter of Cult of the Medics for you. It's a big one. It's going to blow your mind. So be here, and I'll catch you next time. All right, buddy? Cheers, everybody.